Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special mom in your life. And what better way than with the Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets that are perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their advanced eye care duo brightens, awakens, and firms the skin around your eyes, while the golden glow body trio nourishes and smooths the skin all over. Both sets are packaged in giftable boxes. They're so beautiful you can skip the wrapping. And the best part? For a limited time, you can save up to $46 on Osea's sets. Plus, get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. This Mother's Day, get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. Go to OseaMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off site-wide. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and no guest this week, it's just me. I've, but I've got pretty good hope for how this episode's going to go. That said, it's going to get pretty fucking dark. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to be taking you to late World War II and talking about air raids on civilian targets in Europe. Like, I'll touch a bit on the Blitz and stuff um, a bit, but I'm mostly going to be focusing on... Two targets in Germany, um, which are Dresden and Forzheim. But yes, we'll get but we'll get into that in a bit. Um, because I was too late to go to the shops, and plus I'm in a bit of money saving mode at the moment. <laughs> uh, moving house at the end of the month, so hopefully after that I'll be more settled. Just a couple quick updates. Um, I forgot to mention the last episode when I was talking about Patreon and stuff. So yeah, I. Made like Patreon stuff was around before we joined Medley and stuff, so I've made sure that Patreon that all patrons will get ad free episodes, so I'll upload them each week. Um, and also, there's potentially a bit of turbulence towards the end of the month because I'll be moving place, but hope, uh, hopefully, that shouldn't affect too much. So, just a little heads up, but anyway, oh yeah, and shout out to Killian and Kate who have who became patrons recently. And on that, I think we'll cut to music and be back with some stories. So, see you in a bit. And we are back. So... Let's talk about some air raids. First things first, just a little bit of background um, leading up to the German bombings. So you have to think about Europe in the late 1930s. Like the war just broken out and um, and air raids were kind of fresh in the mind from the Spanish Civil War in 37, when fascist forces, including the German Luftwaffe, uh, made attacks on civilians in Guernica. Um, and this resulted in hundreds being killed. In highly in highly successful aerial attacks, so there was a lot of civilian fear um, and military fear for that uh, at this point when people kind of realizing just how powerful planes were becoming. Like planes in warfare started being used just 
maybe about 30 years ago in World War One, like maybe maybe just over 30 years ago in World War One, um, assuming quick maths is correct. So yeah, World War Two starts and the Luftwaffe once again use um, air raids to huge effect throughout Europe, and essentially they'd use it to just overwhelm military targets and also attack civilian civilian um, populations as well. Like, one of the first big ones was in uh, Rotterdam in Holland in May 1940, when a large-scale carpet bombing was used to quicken surrender. And air warfare was also used pretty strongly in dogfights, um, psychological warfare, etc. Um, and yeah, air raids were... I'd classify them as psychological warfare. As on top of destroying military targets, they'd also damage the morale of the, pe- of the population of whatever area has been as being bombed during the bombing of rotterdam the uh, dive bombers were used the dive bombers they used were fitted to would basically make low flights and straight strafing refugees and civilians with machine gun fire while also being equipped with jericho trumpets which would screech as the planes went into their dive which if having a plane dive at you isn't scary enough that's like that's probably worse but anyway moving on a bit more um, towards when things start escalating between Britain and Germany. Like, the first daylight raids on, on Britain began at the start of July in 1940, when on the first of the month, 15 people were killed in Wick when German bombers attacked the town's aerodrome. Uh, shortly later, on the 9th of July, 27 people were also killed in Norwich um, during attacks on factories and ironworks. As the month kept going, um, yeah, there were more raids throughout July as well. Yeah, especially towns on the south coast, which had channel ports and coastal defences. Like other places that got bombed were Southampton, which was pretty badly bombed to the extent that its international cold storage depot um, in the city burned for over a week. We also had places like Coventry, Liverpool, Wrexham, Bradford, and Birmingham um, being attacked in various raids. Now, to this point, a lot of the a lot of the civilian deaths were on were just generally written up as being as as accidental um, hits while targeting military or industrial facilities, um, as bombings were not accurate whatsoever, as we'll mention later on. But this changed on the twenty fourth of August when the Luftwaffe uh, dropped bombs on central London instead of its docks, killing nine people. Though at this point, it's believed that it was accidental. Like I said. Bombs, bombings were inaccurate um, and would often scatter quite strongly. But by the end of August, over a thousand civilians had been killed by bombings. But at this point, it was towards in August, and over a thousand civilians had been king, had been killed by bombings. So Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister at the time, started thinking about a um, attack plan. And after the evacuation from Dun- from Dunkirk. The only way to open a new offensive front for Britain at the time was by air bombings. So Churchill began thinking of a, quote, absolutely devastating, exterminating attack by very heavy bombers from this country upon the Nazi homeland. Which is a lot of descriptions. Yeah. So that evening, Churchill and the War Cabinet got together and decided to order an immediate attack by Bomber Command on Berlin. After which, more than 70 planes left England to bomb the Nazi capital. Needless to say, Hitler didn't like this very much, especially because it's thought that the bomb that was dropped on London was against his orders as well. 
So both accidental and against his orders, which is a double whammy of just unfortunate, really. But yeah, so Hitler responded by going ahead with the air raids famously known as the Blitz, followed by years of raids between the countries. And for people that don't know what Blitz is, I've got a bit of background for you as well there, because it's one of the most iconic parts of British history from the world, from the war. Like, I remember being taught this when I was, I think, seven or eight, or taught about it at least. Um, I was not good at history when I grew up. <laughs> at school at least. I probably learned about it before from horrible histories, because I love those books. But anyway. But anyway, the Blitz. During the Blitz... There were, it was a mass bombing offensive against Britain in 1940 and 41, being named by the German press for the German word for lightning. So German forces conducted mass bombings against industrial targets, towns and cities. So the Battle of Britain happens, which is famous for dogfights over London, with, with tens of thousands of civilian viewers watching from the streets below. And towards the end of the Battle of Britain, the Germans conducted mass air raids against industrial targets, towns, and cities, uh, starting with raids on London uh, right at the end of the battle. By September 1940, Luftwaffe had generally failed, and German air fleets were ordered to attack London um, to draw RAF Fighter Command into a battle of annihilation. And this was ordered on the 6th of September 1940 by Adolf Hitler and Reichsmarschall Hermann Göring, you know, who was the commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe. And from the 7th of September 1940, London was systematically bombed by the Luftwaffe for 56 out of the next 57 days and nights. And over time, the Luftwaffe started to decrease daylight operations in favour of night attacks to essentially sacrificing accuracy for, for evasion. So the Luftwaffe attacked all kinds of places like Liverpool, Hull, Bristol, Cardiff, Portsmouth, Plymouth, Southampton, Swansea... Belfast, Coventry, Glasgow, Manchester, Sheffield, and of course, Birmingham. And over the course of the war, more than 40,000 civilians were killed by Luftwaffe bombing in Britain, with almost half of them being in the capital, where more than a million houses were destroyed or damaged. Now, in early July of 1940, the German High Command uh, also began planning Operation Barbarossa, uh, which was the invasion of the Soviet Union, which I think I mentioned in... When in the first episode with Courtney, when I talked about Gulags, or on the Tang Tong Rage episode, I'm not sure. Anyway, the bombings uh, end up being ineffective for, I said, neither did anything to demoralise the British or do much damage to the war economy, never really hampering war production, uh, which continued to increase throughout the war. Like generally, generally cities took ten to fifteen days to recover uh, when hit severely, apart from exceptions like Birmingham which took three months. Uh, yeah, over the course of this, the Luftwaffe never, never really developed any good strategy for destroying the British war industry, as they had pretty poor intelligence on British industry. So they kind of diluted it by just attacking a bunch of different industries rather than keeping pressure on the vital ones. But yeah, that was Britain anyway. I'm going to take a quick break to music so I can get a drink, then I'll be right back, and we'll switch over to bombings in Central Europe. We are back. So let's move on to British air raids on Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, 
At the same time as the blitzing stuff going on, um, the British Air Force started realising just how inaccurate its bombers were, finding it difficult to hit specific targets, like airfields or factories, or ammunition. To the point, like, remember how I said bombings were inaccurate? Um, like, the British found that when it was bombing in Nazi-occupied Europe, about one in five aircraft was successful in dropping its bombs within five miles of the target. Um... Now, what do you think the best fix to this is? Well, the British decided the best thing to do was that the targets couldn't be like couldn't be small, so small, so they'd have to be, to be directed at targets as big as cities. And in February 1942, Bomber Command was instructed to shift its focus onto the morale of the enemy's civil population, with the new policy being known as area bombing and after this air raids were no longer aimed at military or industrial installations but places like churches or other significant spots in the center of industrial towns and since fire was found to be the most efficient way to destroy a town with densely placed buildings the british bombers started carrying mostly incendiary bombs so essentially, uh, at this point, the, the distinction between military combatants and civilian non-combatants was pretty irrelevant, as everyone was a target, essentially, if, you were, if they were in an industrial town. As new policy essentially put everyone that was living in or near an industrial town was considered to contribute directly or indirectly to the German war effort, and was therefore a legitimate target. Now, if you're not sure what what um, incendiary uh, bombs can do. They were largely uh, white phosphorus bombs, and they are not pleasant. So, just a warning. Uh, I'm going to go into a little bit about what, like, just how horrible this stuff is. Like, white phosphorus is white phosphorus mainly causes injuries in uh, and death in three ways. The first is by burning deep into uh, into uh, tissue. Second is by being inhaled as smoke, and the third is by being ingested. And extensive exposure by burning or ingestion may result in death. So white phosphorus, um, white phosphorus munitions will essentially explode and put and put out a bunch of incandescent particles, which essentially just means that, which essentially means that they give out light and heat. And these particles can cause very extensive, deep uh, second and third degree burns. With the main reason being that why it occurs is was because phosphorus um, has a tendency to stick to skin, and which means that the phosphorus burns can cause a much greater risk of death than other than uh, regular ones. And as it sticks to the skin, um, the phosphorus can be absorbed into the uh, body through the burned areas, uh, which can cause liver, heart, and kidney damage, and like in some cases even multiple organ failure. Which, needless to say, you don't want that ever happening to you. And on top of this, white phosphorus tends to keep burning unless it's deprived of oxygen or is completely used up. And in some cases, burns can be limited to exposed skin only, as the particles don't completely burn through clo clothing sometimes. Now, burning white phosphorus also makes a, a really hot and dense white smoke, which is made up of phosphorus pentoxide. And... Like especially the heavy smoke amounts, um, like just from fire, can be um, can cause illness and death. 
The white phosphor smoke, um, in particular, irritates the eyes, mucous membranes of the nose, the respiratory tract in in moderate concentrations, and in high concentrations can also cause severe burns, as the smoke can be that hot. Like, there's no proper studies of the lethal effects of inhalation of white phosphorus, according to Wikipedia at least, at least for humans. But a former US soldier has described breathing in smoke close to a shell of it uh, causes the throat and lungs to blister until suffocation, with the phosphorus continuing to burn from the inside. And ingestion uh, through the mouth can be lethal with, a- with, a le- with as little as 15 milligrams of the stuff, causing liver, heart or kidney damage. Now, the final thing that white phosphorus re- um, has the effect of doing, really, is with long-term inhalation of the fumes from it. It can cause a condition called fossy jaw, or osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is a really painful and eventually lethal condition, which mostly affected factory workers involved with making matches and munitions with white phosphorus, uh, and essentially leads to the rotting of the bone of the lower jaw. Uh, it's actually the reason that the Berne Convention was of nineteen oh six was made to forbid manufacture, sale, or purchase of matches with white phosphorus in them, and it can also be caused by high doses of lead, cadmium, and biphosphate-based cancer drugs. Yeah, on that, I think I've kind of made it clear just how horrible white phosphorus bombs are, and these became used with pretty terrifying effect, um, both on the front lines and in civilian populations. Now, one week after the area bombing directive was put ahead by the British, Sir Arthur, aka Bomber, Harris, was appointed as the new head of Bomber Command, believing that air power could, could be decisive in winning modern wars and prevent the slaughter of ground forces like in the trenches of World War One. And he would end up being right as air warfare became extremely important in later years and later wars even. And... He went on to launch thousand bomber raids on big cities like Cologne and Hamburg, which was high enough to make Harris confident that a concentrated campaign against Hitler's capital, Berlin, could render Operation Overlord, or the planned invasion of German-occupied Europe, unnecessary, declaring that his bomber force could bring about the collapse of Germany by April 1944, which at this point we know isn't true, but at the time they had hopes. And yeah, by the end of March or so, uh, German morale was still pretty decent and German weapons production would would continue until mid-1944. By winter 1943-44, the American Air Force was starting to make an impact, uh, having joined the strategic bombing campaign in the summer of 1942, uh, committing to precision bombing in daylight. However, uh, um, precision bombing, though a lot more accurate and, um, and producing a lot less um, collateral damage, would would have to occur in daylight in order to be able to see the targets. And these bombers would be easy prey for German air fighters. So essentially what I did was provide long-range escort fighters to protect bombers, uh, luring the Luftwaffe into dogfights, which by the end of spring of 1944 was successful enough that they, had, that they were starting to gain air superiority. And it wouldn't be the destruction of German cities that would end up being decisive for the Allies, but the air superiority of the RAF over the Luftwaffe in the air, as they'd essentially be able to enable the bomber forces to neutralise strategic and tactical targets in France, paving the way for the D-Day landings and the advance of ground forces. At this, at this point um, of France, the British had shown that they could bomb with pretty good accuracy now, with navigational and bombing and bomb aiming tech being greatly improved. 
Yeah, also with the introduction of new low-level target markings, which will allow um, the RAF to be able to hit specific targets, even over the heavy defences of Germany. So, in the summer of 1944, Bomber, Cl- Bomber Command didn't really attack many cities, as most of its efforts went into supporting Allied ground forces, bombing Hitler's V-rocket sites, which could launch rockets to hit Britain, um, and also attacks on oil targets. Intercepted German radio signals would show that the oil campaign was highly successful and starving the Nazis of fuel supplies. However, like I said, uh, precision targeting requires clear weather. And as winter drew closed in, it became more common for weather to be overcast. And bombing through cloud on radar wasn't accurate enough to hit specific targets. So they went back to area bombing. And over October and November 1944, Harris's bomber command would drop more than 60% of their bomb tonnage on German cities. So, once again, escalating the bombings. So yeah, the bombing war would escalate, as the Americans would also find themselves having this issue, and would also turn to area bombing, with 80% of their bombing missions in the last quarter of 1944 relying on radar, and half of their bombs missing the aiming point by more than two miles. So yeah, you could be like over half an hour away and still get hit by a bomb no one near you. But yeah... So, the last months of the war come along in 1945, and by then, all, pretty much all of the German towns of industrial importance were destroyed, but the Nazis were still fighting back and killing thousands, both on the battlefield and in civilian populations, with concentration camps and Nazi V-rockets hitting, hitting civilians in Britain. However, the heavy bombers were essentially running out of targets. So towns with low priority, with little military or industrial importance, were put on the list. And some of them, like Wurzburg and Forzheim, which we're going to later, were chosen just because they were easy targets for the bombers to find and destroy. And as they had medieval centres, they were pretty vulnerable to fire attack. So yeah, essentially, what do you do when you run out of things to bomb? You bomb smaller places. The quote guy called Max Hastings, uh, it would have seemed odd to pretty much anyone who was still fighting to tell the Air Force to stand down. Um, so essentially, air forces were allowed to to keep doing things which were morally dark grey. <laughs> like I won't say grey because there's no like most of these there there was no reason to bomb some of these places. And yeah, I want to focus on two place on two bombings in particular. The first one that I want to talk about is Dresden. So in February 1945, Dresden, which was northern Germany's cultural centre historically, was unaffected by bombing at this point, as it was mainly a cultural centre. So that would come under view of the British and American forces. By February 1945, uh, the, the city was essentially filled with refugees, of people moving from the east to the west to escape the Red Army of Russia. With Nazi propaganda spreading stories of what to expect if the, Germany, uh, if the Red Army got to Germany, uh, leading, leading thousands to flee. Like... No one really knows how many people were in Dresden at the time, as the city's official population was was 350,000, but with the refugees around, it would have been a lot higher. And it's estimated that between 100,000 and 200,000 refugees fleeing from Soviet forces were in the city at the time of the bombing, with estimates based on train arrivals, foot traffic, and the extent of emergency accommodation, as there weren't any official numbers. Um, we have to kind of figure out why Dresden was chosen. The head of Bomber Command was, uh, had the view that any city that with anything to do with the Nazi war effort was a target. So there's a few theories why Dresden was chosen so late in the war when it, when it was coming to an end. So, 
Like the first reason was because it was in Nazi Germany. That that's simply it. It was in it was in Nazi Germany, and no one could really like no one could really tell what these smaller bombings would really do to shorten the war. But at this point, the um, war was so fierce that any possibility of saving Allied lives was felt justified. Like the second reason was that the city wasn't wasn't actually just a cultural center, and there were factories producing weapons and equipment for the Nazi war effort. And on top of that, there was a rail base to send troops to the front to the eastern front. And on top of this, uh, Churchill thought that bombing communication centers in eastern Germany might help the Soviet advance in Berlin, cause confusion in evacuations from the east, and hamper movements of troops. And the third one is that even though the Russians were allied, British Churchill and American Roosevelt had already decided that the Russians the Russians would be a major problem after the war. So as the Red Army advanced against the German army that was effectively already defeated, it hadn't really seen what the British and Americans could do. So part of why Dresden's bond was a show of force for the Russians and a warning not to stray from agreements made at war conferences. And an RAF memo from January 1945, just before the bombing, stated that Dresden, the seventh largest city in Germany, and not much smaller than Manchester, is also far the largest unbombed built up the enemy has got. In the midst of winter, with refugees pouring westward and troops to be rested, roofs are at a premium. The intentions of the attack are to hit the enemy where he will feel it most, behind an already partially collapsed front, to prevent the use of the city in the way of further advance, and incidentally to show the Russians when they arrive what Bomber Command can do. So yeah, refugees were considered legitimate targets, um, simply because they were in a Nazi city that could be used for the German war effort, and because of the chaos that attacks on the refugees would cause on German troop movements to the Eastern Front. Between February 13 and February 14, 1945, Dresden was bombed, killing between 22 and 25,000 people, with between 35,000 and 135 people injured, though... At the time, it was estimated that between 35,000 and 135,000 people killed by Allied bombing in Dresden. There's still argument about, arguments about the number of deaths, but it's much more likely that it's the lower ones. However, since there were so many refugees in the city, the real figures, it's pretty certain that it's never going to be known. So, our Allied air superiority meant that most of the 1,300 bombers got through to their target, with the RAF spearheading their attack with Lancaster bombers of the US Air Force using B-17 flying fortresses. And it have over three waves of attacks, with 3,300 tons of bombs dropped on the city, uh, many of which being the incendiary bombs that we spoke about before. These would create so much fire that a firestorm developed, and the more the city burned, the more oxygen was sucked in, uh, and the greater the firestorm became. Um, it's thought that the temperature peaked at 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, or 982 degrees Celsius. Like, I don't know American measurements, but the boiling point of water in Celsius is 100. So, yeah, pretty fucking hot. Like, the surface of roads melted, and fleeing, and people running away would find that their feet were burned as they ran. Like, some would jump into reservoirs built by the city to help firefighters, leading them to drown, as most of these were 10 feet deep, with smooth-sided, with no ladders. Like, very few of those in the city centre would survive. And there were a few quotes coming up. And I know I've said it a few times, but this is going to get pretty fucking dark, so just another warning. 
Because he's like first-hand accounts of this kind of, of this kind of carnage. Um, there was a guy called Rudolf Eichner who was quoted um, as saying, "There were no warning sirens. We were completely surprised and rushed back down to the cellars at the hospital. But these quickly became hopelessly overcrowded with people who could no longer find shelter in their own burning buildings. The crush was unbearable. We were so tight that you couldn't fall over. Apart from the fire risk." It was becoming increasingly impossible to breathe in the cellar because the air was being pulled out by the increasing strength of the blaze. We could not stand up. We were on all fours, crawling. The wind was full of sparks, carrying bits of blazing furniture, debris, and burning bits of bodies. There were charred bodies everywhere. The experience of the bombing was far worse than being on the Russian front, where I was a frontline machine gunner. And as was common in a lot of air raids... um, Waves would be placed with an hour or so in between them, as this would be when people, when rescuers and firefighters would be help, trying to help the blazes. And by the time the air raid was done, a huge amount of the city was destroyed, and by the time the Red Army took over, it had essentially just been uh, replaced with rubble. After, like, after the raid finished, the SS guards were brought in from a nearby camp to burn the bodies in the city's old square. And there were so many bodies that this took two weeks to complete. And the city centre would essentially remain rubble until the 1950s, as the Russians would put their efforts into rebuilding cities in Russia itself rather than eastern Germany. Like The city authorities didn't distinguish between residents and refugees when establishing casualty numbers, and took great pains to count all the dead, uh, as, and which was possible because most of the dead would come to suffocation, and in only... In only four places were remains so badly burned that it proved impossible to ascertain the number of victims. And the uncertainty brought from this was thought to be no more than 100 people. 35,000 people were registered with the authorities as missing after the raids, with about 10,000 being later found alive. Um, and yeah, this caused a lot of debate, which I'll... I'm going for this one just so we can have... I, I, I thought the best way to do this was to have... Dresden, then some of the debate about Derek Dresden, and then have Forzheim, and just so you can have another one after that you can just kind of think about with the context of Dresden. So there was a lot of post-war debate about Dresden, which I'll go into now and then go back to Forzheim after. So the British historian Frederick Taylor wrote that the destruction of Dresden has an epically tragic quality to it. It has a wonderfully beautiful city and a symbol of Baroque humanism and all that was best in Germany. It also contained all of the worst from Germany during the Nazi period. In that sense, it is an absolutely exemplary tragedy for the horrors of the 20th century warfare and a symbol of destruction. There's a lot of reasons that it became such a big talking point, with one of the first ones being immediately after, where the Nazi government exaggerated claims of the body counts, sometimes more than 10 times. There was also its importance as a cultural icon, the, de- the deliberate creation of a firestorm, the number of victims, the extent to which it was a necessary military target, and the fact that it, it was attacked towards the end of the war. So there's a lot of questions whether it was actually needed. Like, one of the main arguments was that the Hague Conventions, which addressed the codes of wartime on, on land and at sea, were essentially were made before the rise of air powers, and it wasn't updated before the, uh, before the outbreak of World War II. So... This didn't mean that there weren't any laws of war for the air, but there wasn't any general agreement of how to interpret the laws. Like Marshall's Tribunal later on um, would would declare that, that no extraordinary decision was made to single out Dresden, 
uh, to take advantage of like refugees or purposely terrorize the populace. It was mostly argued that it, that it, would, it was to disrupt communications and industrial production. The, and the American inquiry established that the Soviets uh, had requested the area bombing of Dresden to prevent a counterattack or, for, or the use of it as a regrouping point after a strategic retreat. And a report by the U.S. Air Force Historical Division after, after analysis of the raid concluded that it was militarily necessary and justified based on the raid having legitimate military ends uh, brought about by military circumstances. Military units and anti-air defences were sufficiently close that it wasn't valid to consider the city undefended. The raid didn't use extraordinary means, but was comparable to other raids used against comparable targets. The raid was carried out through the normal chain of command, pursuant to directives and agreements, rather than force. The raid achieved the military objective, with, um, to quote, without excessive loss of civilian life, and it concludes with the specific forces and means employed in the Dresden bombings were in keeping with forces and means employed by the Allies in other aerial attacks on comparable targets in Germany. The Dresden bombings achieved the strategic bombing that underlaid the attack and were of mutual importance to the Allies and the Russians. Now, of course, there were a lot of arguments against it. There are arguments against it as military reasons, as an immoral act, but not as a war crime, and finally as a war crime. The arguments against it as military reasons was was pointing out that military barracks listed as a target were a long way out of the city and were not in fact targeted during the raid. The hutted camps mentioned in the report as military targets were not military but camps for refugees. It's also stated that the important autobahn bridge to the west of Germany was not targeted or or attacked and that no railway stations were on the British target maps or any bridges such as the railway bridge spanning the Elbe River. The guy goes on to say that... um, the standard whitewash gambit, both British and American, is to mention that Dresden contained targets X, Y, and Z, and to let the innocent reader assume that these targets were attacked, whereas in fact, the bombing plan totally omitted them, and thus, except for one or two mere accidents, they escaped. The bomber commanders were not really interested in any purely military or economic targets, which was just as well, for they knew very little about Dresden. The RAF even lacked proper maps of the city. What they were looking for was a big built-up area which they could burn, and that Dresden possessed in full measure. Historian Sonken Nietzsche said that it's difficult to find any evidence in German documents that the destruction of Dresden had any consequences worth mentioning on the Eastern Front. The industrial plants of Dresden played no significant role in German industry at this stage of the war. Wing Commander H.R. Allen said that the final stage of Bomber Command's operations was far and away the worst. Traditional British chivalry and the use of minimum force in war was to become a mockery, and the outrages perpetrated by the bombers will be remembered a thousand years hence. Which is kind of sad, because um, there's a reason I'm telling you people about this now. On top of this, in the north of Dresden uh, had the Alberstadt, which had remarkable military facilities that the bombings didn't hit. The next argument was for the bombing being an immoral act, but not a war crime. A.C. Grayling said that ever since the deliberate mass bombing of civilians in the Second World War, and as a direct response to it, the international community has outlawed the practice. It first tried to do so in the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, but the UK and the US would not agree, since to do so would have been an admission of guilt for their systematic area bombing of German and Japanese civilians. Frederick Taylor uh, said that, I personally find the attack on Dresden horrific, it was overdone, it was excessive, and is to be regretted enormously. 
But a war crime is a very specific thing which international lawyers argue about all the time and I would not be prepared to commit myself, nor do I see why I should. I'm a historian. And an AC grading from the previous quote described the British area bombardment as, a, as an immoral act and a moral crime because destroying everything contravenes every moral and, and humanitarian principle debated in connection with the just conduct of war. But it is not strictly correct to describe area bombing as a war crime. And then the last argument is the bombing as a war crime. And even though no one involved in the bombing was ever charged, some still have the opinion that it was. Like, Dr. Gregory Stanton, who's the lawyer and president of Genocide Watch, is quoted as saying, Every human being having the capacity for both good and evil. The Nazi Holocaust was among the most evil genocides in history, but the Allies' firebombing of Dresden and nuclear destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were also war crimes. And as Leah Cooper and Eric Markerton have argued, also acts of genocide. We are all capable of evil and must be restrained by law from committing it. Historian Donald Bloxham argued that it was a war crime. He argued that there was a strong uh, case at, on first impression for trying Winston Churchill and others, and a theoretical case that Churchill could have been found guilty. And then he's quoted as saying, This should be a sobering thought, if however also a startling one. This is probably less the result of widespread understanding of the nuance of international law, and more because in the popular mind, war criminal, like paedophile or terrorist, has developed into a moral rather than a legal categorization. Like, a lot of people argue that the devastation from the firebombing was greater than anything that could be justified by military necessity alone. And the Allies would have been aware of the effects of firebombing as, this, as British cities had been subjected to them during the Blitz. Some people argue that Dresden even had a military garrison and claimed that most of the industry was in the outskirts not in the target, and not in the city centre that was targeted. And also the cultural significance of the city should have prevented the Allies from bombing it. Uh, British, British historian Anthony Beaver wrote that Dresden was considered relatively safe, as shown by being spared in any previous RAF attacks, even though it was a city. And at the time of the raids, there were up to 300,000 refugees, which is bigger than the number I said earlier. I said, very hard to say, it's still a bit all over the place, in the area seeking sanctuary from the advancing Red Army from the Eastern Front. And German historian Jörg Friedrich um, says that the RAF's bombing campaign against German cities in the last months of the war served no military purpose, claiming that with that Churchill's decision to bomb a shattered Germany between January and May 1945 was a war crime. And according to him, 600,000 civilians died during Allied bombings of German cities, including 72,000 children. Yeah. In one night during the firestorms of Hamburg alone in, Jan in July 1945, 45,000 people died. And it's said that at the end of the Hamburg firestorm, the number of dead in the shelter had to be estimated by the thickness of a layer of ashes on the floor, with most civilians not being recovered from under the rubble and just disappearing. So yeah, lots to think about about Dresden. So I'm going to cut the music and then come back with Forsheim, and maybe a little bit more depending on how long this goes. But yeah, I'll be right back. And we are back. So, the bombing of Forsheim now. So Forsheim was a town in southwestern Germany and was bombed a number of times, with the largest raid 
being one of the most devastating area bombardments of the war, which occurred on the evening of February 23, 1945, about 10 days after Dresden. Like beforehand, there were a few minor raids on the place, with the first Allied raid on Forsheim taking place on the 1st of April 1944, which resulted in relatively minor damage and 95 people dying. And further attacks would occur, with the largest being on the 24th of December and the 21st of January 1945. And the RAF also uh, carried out a number of nighttime nuisance raids on Forsheim and other towns, using light bombers to force the German Air Force to respond and also confuse German defences by making it more difficult for Germans to identify the major raids. And by doing this, the raids would divert, uh, they'd divert resources away from the main bomber streams. These nuisance raids would essentially also affect civilians, of course, living there, uh, driving them into shelters, uh, disturbing their sleep, etc. There were also more raids on the 2nd, 3rd and 4th of October in 1944, and a further three raids in October and one in November 1944. And across all these raids, the RAF lost one aircraft. Now, you have to think kind of when these places are getting bombed. It's not just they have to get up and go to a shelter or something. Like, people would have to get, like, wake up in the middle of the night, grab, like, try and get the children together, try and get people into wheelchairs, etc. Try and get their pets uh, secured, etc. And would essentially instill a lot of terror into into the civilian population. Okay, so, 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 so. Let's talk about the main raid. The reason for this raid was that a um, report was compiled for RAF Bomber Command on the 28th of June 1944, stating that Forzheim was one of the centres of German jewellery and watchmaking trade, and is therefore likely to have become of considerable importance to the production of precision instruments. And an Allied report issued in August 1944 stated that almost every house in this town centre is a small workshop and that there were a few larger factories in the south and one in the north of the city centre. An attack on the city would destroy the built-up area and the associated industries and rail facilities. There were no war-crucial targets, but war-relevant ones. How accurate this is, is debatable. And in November 1944, Forsheim was placed for the first time on a target list for the Allied forces, but with the lowest priority on a scale from 1 to 5, uh, being Category 5. And in that report, the city was described as being very suitable for a raid because the road and rail communications uh, through the easily spotted old city was known to be very flammable and Forsheim was used to, in transfer of troops. So February 23 comes along and the Allies drop bombs on Forsheim, almost destroying the inner city with a raid including 379 aircraft. Um, the first bombs were dropped in 1950 and the last was dropped at 2012 lasting 22 minutes. And the main force bombers were 367 Avro Lancaster bombers, of three groups along with one film unit, Lancaster, and 13 Mosquitoes. The master bomber of the raid was Major Ted Swales, who was a South African uh, aged 29, and would, who would be awarded the Bomber Command's last Victoria Cross of the war, as despite severe damage to his plane, he remained over the target directing the raid and died when his Lancaster crashed near Valenciennes on the return flight home. The bombs were dropped from a height of 8,000 feet, or 2,400 meters, being a standard mix of high explosive and, and incendiary bombs. And, like I said, the town centre suffered immediate destruction and a firestorm broke out, reaching the most devastating phase about 10 minutes from the start of a raid. Yeah, smoke over the town would rise about three kilometers, 
with returning bombers being able to see the glare from up to 160 kilometers away. Of these, 12 aircraft would not return to their bases, with 11 of them being shot down by Luftwaffe fighters, with and another assumed to have been hit by friendly bombs uh, from bombers flying overhead. At least two aircraft crashed not far from Forsheim, and one aircraft was hit twice in that and crashed in France. Of these, uh, one of the Lancasters would crash near the village of Neuhausen, with three of its members bailing out and two surviving. The other one would crash near the village of, of Alfingstadt, near the, near the town of Kalu, or Kalu, C-A-L-W. That's a weird word, I'm not going to... Yeah. At least one of these would, would have been killed after falling in the hands of civilians with pitchforks. The German bombing report of February 24, the next day, had only two lines reporting the bombardment, saying, In the early hours of February 23, a forceful British attack was directed at Forsheim. The post-war British bombing survey would estimate that 83% of the town's built-up area was destroyed, which is probably the greatest proportion in one raid during the war. In, and in the city centre, almost 90% of the buildings would be destroyed. So yeah, that, that would be about two-thirds of the complete area of Forsheim, and between 80 and 100% of the inner city. Like, in an area about 3 kilometres long and 1.5 kilometres wide, all of the buildings were reduced to rubble. 17,600 citizens of Forsheim were killed, and thousands were injured. Now, 17,600 citizens of Forsheim would be about 31.4% of the town's population at the time, with people dying from immediate impact of explosions, from burns, uh, from incendiary materials, including those that seeped into basement windows and into the cellars of houses where they hid, from lack of oxygen and also poisonous gases, and also collapsing buildings. Yeah, many, many jumped into the river and drowned, uh, as they tried to escape from the burning materials. But as they used white phosphorus, uh, the phosphorus material floated on the water, uh, forming a gel which burned, and water would not extinguish it. And what's worse than that is that the gel would ign- reignite instantly when the victim re-emerged, essentially giving them a choice between drowning or burning to death. And there were reports of people drowning themselves or um, children to end, to end their suffering. Yeah, some victims would die as blankets were thrown over them to smother the fire and catch fire themselves, just adding another coating of flame. If it landed on the hair, the victim's whole head caught fire, and people in these attacks were seen running like human torches until they mercifully expired. A headline on April 8th, 1945, would read, US 7th Army Captures Forsheim. After the attack, about 30,000 people were fed by makeshift kitchens because their housing had been destroyed. Many citizens were buried in common graves at Forsheim's main cemetery because they couldn't be identified, and there's many graves of complete families. The Labour Office of 1945 listed 2,980 foreigners in Forsheim, with one source putting the number of foreign labourers who died in the bombings at 498. The inner city districts were pretty much completely depopulated, and these numbers are pretty crazy actually. Like, um, According to the State Statistics Bureau, in the Market Square in 1939, there were 4,112 registered inhabitants. In 1945, there were none. In the Old Town area in 1939, there were 5,109 inhabitants. In 1945, only two people were living there. In Leopold Square in 1939, there were 4,416 inhabitants. In 1945, there were only 13. After the war, rather than rebuild the centre of Forsheim, the main thoroughfares were widened, and the rubble was 
heaped into a large mound on the outskirts of the town and covered in soil and vegetation, being named the Wahlberg. It's quite common for other German cities to have similar mounds, which serve as a reminder of the destruction of the bombings. It's worth noting that a lot of the accounts of the use um, of white phosphorus and its victims were generally stricken from military records, but a copy of the US Strategic Bombing Survey admits that phosphorus burns were not infrequent at the tail end of the war on the Americans' part, and the US would, was actually a supplier of phosphorus to, to the British as well. It's worth noting that th- this wouldn't be the end for the citizens of Forsheim, as on, the, on March the 4th, aircraft bombed the area around Kupferhammer, on March 14, 16, 18, 19, 20, and 24th, the railway facilities would finally be bombed. On March 17, the motorway at Forsheim was bombed, and on March 23rd, the area in Utingen Valley was bombed. It's worth noting that, this, that unlike Dresden, Forsheim had very little publicity or and remains relatively unknown. And yeah, like, one quote I found was, Atrocities are relative. In the case of one bombed-out town, which receives little mention, the bombing was every bit as cataclysmic as that of Dresden, and that a full third of its population was wiped out in one hellish hour. No, there are no parades or demonstrations in remembrance of the event. There is only a mountain in the distance, which looks eerily similar to those near almost every German city. It is where their past is buried, where the burned, scarred rubble of an incinerated town was dumped and covered with dirt, which has long since grown grass and trees. The post-war British bombing survey unit said that the bombing destruction of Forzheim was probably the greatest proportion in one raid during the war. Quote, Yet it is interesting, though some Dresden apologists and garden variety conformist historians now tend to cite the assault on Forzheim as unnecessary overkill, and perhaps even a criminal bombing. It still gets no press, no visits from the English Queen, no songs written in its honour. It just sleeps under its mountain of soil with its dead children at its feet. And yeah, it's um, it's kind of crazy just how little publicity Forsheim got in comparison to Dresden and other bombings. And a year after the end of World War Two, author Alfred Doblin um, wrote about Forsheim, um, as quoted as saying, "Utterly vanished from the surface of the earth, raised completely to the ground, smashed to bits and pieces. No soul left here. Forsheim, you have been wiped from the world's atlas." Yeah, I've got a. Got a couple quotes from firebombing from like Dresden and I'm not like some of my notes. These are just from the internet because I kind of realised that with all these I could pick at random and they're all pretty horrifying. So yeah, so I'll pick a few and then we'll finish up. The American writer Kurt Vonnegut, who was a young prisoner of war in Dresden, um, wrote that they burnt the whole damn town. Every day we walked into the city and dug into basements and shelters to get the corpses out, as a sanitary measure. When we went into them, a typical shelter, an ordinary basement usually, looked like a streetcar full of people who simultaneously had heart failure. Just people sitting there in their chairs, all dead. A firestorm is an amazing thing. It doesn't occur in nature. It's fed by tornadoes that occur in the midst of it, and there isn't a damn thing to breathe. And, um, yeah, like, firebombs occurred every, like, in a lot of places during the war, like, yeah, like the US is also quite famous on use on using firebombing in Japan. With um, one quote I read saying, "We've come to measure the efficiency of bombings by throw rates and kill ratios, eliding the perspectives of the victims. But what of those who felt the wrath of the bombs? 
one policeman in uh, in one of the Tokyo firebombings said, uh, described it as rivers of fire, flaming pieces of furniture exploding in the heat, while the people themselves blazed like matchsticks as their wood and paper homes exploded into flames, and the gigantic breath of fire, immense incandescent vortices, rose in a number of places, swirling, flattening, sucking whole blocks of houses into their maelstrom of fire. And coming off the end of that quote, Worth noting that a lot of bo- a lot of the firestorms caused by these bombings in Japan would have been a lot worse, just because a lot of their, like like it's, like that quote said, a lot of their buildings were made of wood and paper. While reading about this, I've seen them described as matchboxes. But anyway, we're back to Ge- back to uh, Germany. That was just like a little that was just a little tangent I forgot. But yeah, it's worth um just to finish off. I'm gonna throw in a couple of um yeah, I'm just taking a few quotes from a book called Bombing Germany, The Final Phase The Destruction of Forsheim and the Closing Months of Bomber Command's War. Uh, I'm just going to take some random quotes from here because literally like, there's so many that I could take and like so many horrifying ones that I, don't, I can't decide. So uh, I'm just going to pick them as I see them as I scroll through. Yeah. So um, yeah. 12 year old Rainer Leopold was written as um Apparently her shelter was struck by a blast from a large bomb, which caused benches and shelves to tumble and pressure to suck caps and hats from the heads of those inside. The light went out and the cellar door was torn away and people were thrown from one door to the other. They were trapped as the cellar, d- as the cellar stairs were blocked by debris. And there's a quote, We could hear cries for help from the next cellar. We managed to clear the safety door of rubble and we and our ten fellow shelterers were, were saved. They got out just in time as phosphorus was trickling down the stairs. They found the Ble- the Bleistras completely un- ablaze. The heat was terrific and they could hear, hear desperate cries for help. They broke through the ring of fire by running across open ground towards the Metzelgraben Canal. We jumped into the water. It almost reached our necks. This saved our lives, but our fellow shelters didn't make it. They either burnt or were suffocated. The soldiers at Buchenberg Barracks nearby that went into the city to help also weren't really spared the facts. Yeah, Otmar Hess said, When the fire company eventually came back, most couldn't report as their voices had gone. Meta Stanger, who was a citizen who had to abandon her son to save her daughter, was still in the Enns River with the girl sheltering under the Rosbrook, and was in the Enns River with, with her daughter sheltering under the Rosbrook, having grabbed a blanket as it floated past and held it over their heads to protect them with flying sparks, with the firestorm making it difficult to breathe. And they're quoted by saying, We had felt our way along the side wall until we, were, until we were under the bridge. Other people were also glued to the wall. Later, she returned to the cellar where she had left her son, and there was no sign of him. I couldn't face living in Forsheim anymore. I never had the feeling that my child was dead, rather than that he would live on without me, with strangers. One of the former residents, Christian Grow, was quoted as saying, This catastrophic attack killed over 17,000 people, approaching one quarter of Forsyth's population. This estimate is as accurate as we would like to get. The blazing city created a bright glow in the, su- in the sky, visible for many miles around. Many bodies were never recovered. Thousands were totally incinerated, reduced to ash. There were many thousands of wounded. The city's main hospital, Sartish's Krankenhaus, was destroyed. But the church-run Siloa hospital was left largely intact. On that night, the survivors found it difficult to leave the central area as it was consumed by the firestorm. They had to climb uphill to the north or south in order to save themselves. Most of those who couldn't get out burnt to death or were asphyxiated. Some, who tr- some jumped into the rivers to escape the flames. Many drowned as a result. 
Those who didn't drown became hypothermic. It was February and cold. Irma Falcatosi um, was quoted as saying, When the bombing started, everything shook, even as far out as Arlinger. In her future husband's shelter at the time, the near-misses forced soot out the chimneys and turned everyone black. Arno knew he had to get everyone out. They just about squeezed for a hole knocked through to the next cellar. Only his aunt Lizzie was hurt. When scrambling to get out, phosphorus dropped onto her arm. At first she felt no pain, as her skin was protected by a soaked cloth. Then there was contact with her flesh and she started to scream. She bore the scars for the rest of her life. Our shelter withstood the bombing. We came out and saw the city on fire. We went to the top floor and just stared. The entire city had become hell. That scene is imprinted on my brain. I will never forget it. I can still see it. And two more quotes. So the first one was, I was no, able, I was no longer able to feel any kind of emotion. I, con- I continued as a different human being. I imagined the instinct of self-preservation wrapped a protective wall around me. I would need that over the coming days and weeks. Couple more. Yeah, this one's about rescuers trying to reach people trapped in the cellar of the debris that was once the hotel post. They entered a shelter and found people tightly packed on the stairs. They were all dead, suffocated. We carried several of them outside until we were exhausted. Then we crawled downstairs over the dead bodies. I can't and don't want to describe the images presenting themselves to those down there. It was terrible. Nobody could be saved. Now this from Bernhard uh, Morderer, um, who had lost his father just a couple of months before the raid. His, his mother and two of his four siblings lived in Forsheim. He had stayed at vacu- vacuees, uh, having gotten on the last escort trip for children, yeah, who were lucky enough to leave Forsheim before the attack. I struggled over mountains of debris to reach Schulz de Dillestras. All I, when I got there, all I found was parts of the cellar walls. In chalk on a wall, there were 13 crosses with the names of those who had died in the cellar. Among these were my mother, my, my younger brother, and my sisters. Two bombed houses long, soldiers were busy searching for survivors. I asked them if they had taken the, ha- the dead from number four. They said yes, and that all the bodies were at the cemetery. My first thoughts were, what now? I realised that, at the age of 13, I was an orphan. I returned to the crosses on the wall to make sure and to say farewell to the house. I couldn't cry. We children were so influenced by the war. We all believed victory would come. The Hitler jugend taught us that after victory, everything would be better. Actually, one more, because I always found one that, another one that I... Yeah. So I was just coming along across number one. That was quite good that I read earlier. Yeah, this is from uh, Hans Gerstung, whose father had six sisters, one of which was missing, uh, being Anna and her husband, Richard Sally. Um, who had lived at Leopoldsplatz at West at Westlis Karl Friedrichstrasse 48. Their bodies were thought to be in the cellar, but the building was still too hot to enter, even three days after the bombing. Um, to quote, We clambered over rubble and bodies and managed to enter the cellar, but we could only get halfway in. The extreme heat forced us back. We returned a few days later. Neighbours said that the building had cooled. We went into the cellar and found seven bodies. They were tiny, shrunk by the heat. We took a closer look and noticed that two bodies were pressed together, as though hugging each other when overcome by death. We had to use a lot of force to separate them. Their heads and other extremities were tiny, shrunken by the heat. They were unrecognisable, but Mother said, That's Anna. She recognised her dress. The dress material was intact where the bodies had been squeezed together, and she recognised the pattern. That's how we identified them. Like, it's worth thinking that throughout this entire war, millions died. Four time alone was that number is hard to imagine. You really don't get any of the impact unless you bring it down to pers- the personal level. 
and that's when you really realize just how horrible these things like these events were like some other things that i just didn't men- mention because I, I, there was so much that i could get through was um stuff like it began like around four time afterwards it began to rain ash um up to 30 miles from the fires and on top of that like uh, white phosphorus munitions you have all the like the smoke made from it would have like would have basically put the evacuation under a burning smoke screen and yeah it's super horrible stuff but on that we'll cut to music then come back to an outro see you in a minute And we are back. So, so we'll just finish up now, because at the moment we are at two hours thirty-five minutes, and I feel like I may have to cut that down a bit. <laughs> yeah, I might have overdone it a little bit. So, let's plug the Murderly Network, and I think the Murder.ly website is now up, still kind of being built up a little bit, but it's it should be online now. And what else? So, um, if you want, you can check me out on social media. Yeah, we've got Facebook at facebook.com slash blood on the rocks, Twitter at the bloody rocks, Instagram at the bloody rocks. We have, we have a Discord chat server that you can, where you can join and come have a chat, maybe post your thoughts about episodes or whatever. I'll post a link to that in the, um, description or on, and on social media and stuff from time to time. Uh, I've got email at botrpodcast at gmail.com. Patreon, right? We have Patreon rewards, uh, including ad free episodes. Uh, for every for every patron, and on the five dollar a month thing, we've currently got a HP Lovecraft mini series going on. So there's currently episodes coming out for that from time to time. Hopefully, I'll show the next one up by like in the next few days. Uh, moving has kind of thrown the spanner in timings at the moment, but the first episode is up, and I've got notes done for the second one. Yeah, I just need to get it recorded and edited, and that'll be up soon. Just to finish off. Um, just want to say a big thank you to everyone that's been. Like really responsive and stuff, and as interactive with us on on social media, Twitter, and what up and whatever. Uh, you guys are awesome. I've made plenty of good friends over Twitter and stuff, uh, and it really means a lot to me that uh, you guys are supporting me. You listening, like you guys listening, is like it means a lot to me. Thank you. And on that, we'll cut to music. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends and have a great week. I'll see you soon.